Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Break It Down for Brackens podcast. We are in our 50s now, which is pretty freaking awesome. I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk to a lot of good people, some in person, uh, but a lot at this time are being done through Zoom or other platforms. Um, today we talked to Chief Ranger Ryan Levins of the Harpers Ferry National Historic Park. Um, we talk about what it's like to be a ranger, what the career path is like, some adventures that he's had, including wrestling, alligators, bears, hoodlums, the sort of things that you don't get to hear about, uh, we got to hear about. And we also got some uh, updates on the progress of um, the historic national park that is in Harpers Ferry. Podcast is brought to you by justthefreakingrecipe.com just the freaking recipe.com that's all you get ingredients instructions on how to cook uh, this is that's basically as simple as I could describe that website um, it's a pretty new website but there's quite a few entries already um, and I think there's an opportunity to upload your recipes if you want to just the freaking recipe.com we're also brought to you by Bracken's painting my painting company they specialize in interior and exterior painting both residential and commercial during the COVID-19 crisis that we're dealing with right now we are trying to focus only on exterior painting and um, exterior commercial and residential I mean commercial and I'm sorry we're focusing on exterior residential and both interior and exterior commercial projects typically on a property that's closed due to the uh, quarantine as well you can find out more information about Bracken's painting at brackenspainting.com or check them out on Facebook. We're also brought to you by City National Bank. My banker is Melissa Knott in Jefferson County at their two branch locations, one in, one in Ranson and one in Charlestown. Her plug will play at the end of the podcast. Let's see what Ryan, Chief Ryan, has to say. Here we go again. We are on another podcast. Today we are meeting with Chief Ranger Levin. Is it Levins or Levin? Levins with S. Chief Levins. He is the uh, he is my top contact with the Harpers Ferry National Historic Park. Um, but he's going to come on and tell us all about what it's like to be a ranger. Uh, some adventures he's had because he's been on for quite a few years. Ryan, thanks for being on the podcast, bud. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me on there, Kevin. Cool. Let's uh, let's start off with some of your background. Uh, where are you from? Where have you lived? Where have you traveled? Family, both professionally and personally. Tell me about yourself. Right. Well, I'm from the state of Indiana. I was born uh, just north of Indianapolis uh, in a place called Anderson, and I lived the first, you know, 18 years of my life on the north side of Indianapolis in a town called Westfield. And then when I came out, to, I came out to Shepherd College for my education because uh, Shepherd had a program. And so. Uh, I'm sorry, what, what kind of what kind of program? Was, uh, the major was park administration. They don't offer in and they do not offer the program anymore, but. Shepherd has a lot of national park units close by, like the CNO Canal, Antietam National Battlefield, 
Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. So I figured, hey, go to Shepherd, and then um, I could get an internship at one of the local parks, which is what happened. So you're, you had interest at 18 years old in working in the parks or recreation kind of industry? Yeah, I've always, I've always been a history buff. So it was my intention at the, when I came to Shepherd was to go into the interpretation field, which is a, a type of ranger that deals with public contact and, and passing on information about whatever park or whatever the history of a certain park unit is, I would talk to them about the history of a park unit or what happened there. So that was my first desire when I came to Shepherd was to do interpretation. So after so after Shepherd, were you hired by? Um, well, I guess what, what happened next? Uh, when I I got hired at Harper's Ferry as a first, I was a volunteer. And then in, in uh, 1993, I was brought on as a, uh, a seasonal interpretive ranger. So I did historical tours of the lower town of Harpers Ferry, talked about John Brown, Civil War history. But then I decided, you know, that probably wasn't for me. And so I would hear the law enforcement rangers on the radios doing river rescues, dealing with folks that were, you know, maybe not following the rules. And I, I was like, hey, I think I'll switch over into that field. And so after Shepard, I went to a law enforcement training program in North Carolina. And then I came back to Harpers Ferry for a short bit. And I got hired at a park in West Texas called Guadalupe Mountains National Park. And it's one of those places that's an hour from the closest town. So, um, it was quite different going from Harpers Ferry where Charlestown's eight miles away to um, Guadalupe Mountains National Park where the closest town is in New Mexico. So at this point, were you now a ranger? I was, yeah, I was a, a we call it a, a visitor and resource protection ranger or LE ranger, law enforcement ranger. So yeah, I was carrying a um, 357 revolver and uh, patrolling out in the wilds of West Texas for a year. It sounds very adventurous. I mean, when I, when I think of this, I think of days and days of, of things happening and the adventure of being out in the remote areas. Tell me how wrong I am. Well, <laughs> there, I mean, there were some days that you would go out, like we would go out for a couple day backcountry trips where the rangers would go out and hike up into the backcountry, and you're up there by yourself, and you never know who you're going to run into. I mean, Guadalupe Mountains is not a heavily visited park, but you know, I remember I was up up on top of uh, you know the because Guadalupe Mountains has the highest point in Texas, Guadalupe Mount, uh, Guadalupe. You there? Hold on. Let me uh, see if I can get you again. 
Can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you. All right, I lost you when you were talking about the um, repeat. You said that the Guadalupe Mountains were the highest point, I assume, in Texas. So that's where we froze up for some reason. So go ahead. All right, yeah. So yeah, uh, Guadalupe, the mountains, uh, the highest point in Texas is Guadalupe Peak. It's at 8,749 feet. So we would go up there for a couple of day backcountry hikes. And I'm up on this remote campground and I'm getting, there's lightning strikes all around me. I'm sitting in my tent, just praying to God that I don't get struck by lightning because uh, I didn't want the ranger. I wouldn't, I wouldn't report in after a couple of days being out in the backcountry, and they'd come up and they'd find my charred body uh, in this tent <laughs> after being struck by lightning. So, you, but you never knew who you're going to run, run into um, if you're out in the backcountry um, doing a hike. So that, that, I find that interesting. In my mind, park rangers ride around in SUVs, and pick right. up trucks, and they just uh, make sure the rules are being followed. But you're saying that you would actually go up and kind of solo hike and camp out for days at a time, like on patrol? Yeah, yeah, you would. And you would uh, go out. We had um, backcountry. Uh, you, could, you could be at the campgrounds, and you'd be out checking that make sure that People are, are following their permits, camping where they're supposed to be. Um, we also had a backcountry cabin where you could, you know, spend a little bit. You know, that wasn't roughing it as bad as the uh, in the campground was. But, yeah, you would spend a couple of days up there in the backcountry by yourself. So how does a park ranger differ from, uh, like, game wardens versus guys of law enforcement version? And isn't there a law enforcement version of the forestry department? There is um, the U.S. Forest Service, which, you know, has, uh, there's the Monongahela National Forest out in West Virginia. They have a law enforcement side of their shop. And so as far as the difference between a game warden and a National Park Service ranger, the similarities are pretty similar because we enforce hunting game, hunting regulations and fishing regulations, things like that. You know, at Harpers Ferry, we don't allow hunting. We do allow fishing, but each park unit is kind of different. Whereas in, in the Everglades in Florida, we allowed fishing. So that was a big thing. A part of my job was to go out and, and check fish and make sure people were following, catching the right size fish within the, within the limit which they could keep. Um, and I did that in Florida at another park called Big Cypress, where you would go out and check deer or check maybe uh, squirrels, or, you know, various game that was being taken to make sure people were following the regulations, like like a game warden would in West Virginia. So a game warden, though, they go on private property or they're able to travel more, like they have a larger jurisdiction. Is that how it's different also? Uh, you know, the, we can go on private property too. I mean, if we're investigating, invest, investigating something that we believe took place on, on the national park, then certainly we can go investigate. We can go up and do a knock and talk on somebody's front door and, you know, try to learn a little bit more. But I guess as far as when it comes to national parks, we can enforce state, state regulations, but we can also enforce federal regulations. Whereas a state game warden is pretty much only just doing uh, state 
regulations. That's good. Uh, that's a very good description. Um, Florida, let's talk more about that. Uh, I guess mm -hmm. before we focus on Florida, rattle off some of the other places that um, you've, you've uh, worked. I've worked at a place called Lake Mead National Recreation Area, which Lake Mead is a big recreation area right outside of Vegas. And so Hoover Dam backs up and makes Lake Mead. So I worked, I was basically stationed right around the Hoover Dam there. And I worked there for a year uh, in 96, I think. And then I after a year, I transferred to the, the St. Louis Arch, which is in downtown St. Louis, which is, you know, you know, the big arch right there, famous arch in St. Louis. I worked there for a year. And then I got my permanent government status at a place called Yosemite National Park, which, you know, a few people heard about. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Permanent government status, because because I, cause, cause I yes. was you, you, you sparked two questions before I even brought up permanent government status. When you go work at Lake Mead, which is the Hoover Dam or right. the Arch in St. Louis, are you staying in some sort of like a barracks, or do you actually go buy a house or rent? How does that work? No, we we didn't. Sometimes if you go to a park, they'll offer you park housing. Um, when I lived, when I worked at West Texas at Guadalupe Mountains, I was living in a park house, but in Nevada, I didn't, they didn't have any housing available. So I had to go rent a house in a place called Boulder City, Nevada. And then uh, in St. Louis, they didn't have any park housing. So I had, I had to rent. Um, at Yosemite, they had park housing. So um, I was able to get a place uh, that was um, given to me by the government and I paid rent for it. So somebody who was daydreaming about being a, a park ranger, what, um, do you know you're only going to serve at a location for a year or do you just have the opportunity to transfer and decide to make the move? How does that, could you choose to stay at Fort Meade for a couple of years? Well, they, what they did when I got the job there at Lake Meade, um, they said, we can give you a, a year appointment, one year appointment with the possibility of a second year um, so it was, it wasn't a permanent job. You didn't, you knew that you couldn't go there and stay your whole career there. You, you just had maybe at the most a year plus another year. And that was the same way with St. Louis. Um, when I got to, when I got to Yosemite, it was a permanent job. So if I decided to stay my whole career at Yosemite National Park, I could do so, but I choose to move, chose to move on. Is there a reason why they set it to be short-term tours? I think they just didn't, maybe the, the money was only so lim limited to a certain, that period of time that they had funding for, and they weren't going to go ahead and commit because it, as a season, as a, just having that year job, they weren't paying my benefits. So it was a little bit cheaper for them not to pay the benefits. Um, so yeah, it was cheaper. Okay. So then you're talking about benefits. Is that what you meant by permanent government position? Right. Yeah. Once, once you, um, once they offer you a permanent job, then they start giving you benefits. So you, you, you start paying into your retirement system and then you, you can, you get the health benefits, uh, which, are, which can be, you know, federal government benefits, which are, 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 are nice. So, uh, they start pay, you know, giving you the, the benefits and then it's taken out of your, 
your payroll as, as needed. Off mute. So the, um, is that kind of like being a tenured professor? Like now you have a legit full-time job that you don't have to worry about right. losing and now they're accounting for you and their budgets and they're going to put you in more long-term kind of assignments? Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that, I mean, a lot of times with National Park Service, a lot of people will spend a few years working seasonally to, uh, and to get the, until they get offered a job, a permanent government job. For me, you know, I started in 1993 as a seasonal, and then I got offered the permanent government job in 1998. So it took me five years. So I had that, that five-year window of not knowing, you know, not having health benefits, that kind of thing, um, unless you paid for it, you know, privately. Um, so how, how does one do it if they have a family? If you've got to pull a year in Vegas yeah. and then a year in St. Louis and then a year somewhere else, and like I said, five years, um, how, do, how do you maintain that sort of a, a family lifestyle? Or is it just not really what you yeah, it's, it's, you know, I never had the, to worry about it when I was younger. I mean, I didn't have the family. Um, so it was easy for me, but I think, you know, some, sometimes maybe both parents would have to work um, to make ends meet or to have the, maybe the, the, the wife or whoever the spouse was, they would get a, a better paying job and had, they had a different, different profession that, uh, would bring in more money and could um, help pay the bills. I wasn't really even speaking from a money point of view. I was just imagining trying to like uproot even a couple and say, Hey, I got yeah. heads up in six weeks. I got to go to Vegas yeah. for a year. You want to come? Yeah. And it's tough because I, I've, I've known um, families in the park service where one of the, you know, the husband might've been in Nevada and their wife was in Florida and they were split up because of, of the job situation. So it could, it could certainly strain a relationship um, based on deciding to make the Ranger business a career. Okay. So let, let's loop back. Uh, tell me about what it was like in the Everglades. How long were you there and what kind of job did you have? And tell me, tell me a cool story. Yeah. Everglades was cool because you know, they, they offered me a job and I play, I worked at a place called uh, the Gulf Coast District. So you think of the Everglades and you think of the, the river of grass. We didn't have that. We had, I was doing boat patrol. So every day, I mean, I had never operated a, a boat in, in the day of my, you know, a day in my life. And they're like, okay, we're going to go and train you to operate a boat. I didn't know much about the fishing of South Florida. And so every day, my job was to go out on a boat. So they trained me up to know the, 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 the bays and rivers of, of South Florida. And I had 40 miles of, of the Gulf coast on the, on the, on the outside. And then we had 40 miles of back country. So, I mean, I had a great tan, you know, it was, was, it was, it was good. Um, and so, but it was, it was kind of a learning experience because, um, I had to learn on the fly and good thing I had good coworkers that were able to teach me that kind of stuff. So prior to Florida, was that when you were in St. Louis? Yes. 
Okay, from 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 St. Louis to the Everglades, it's kind of amazing to imagine. Just, I mean, I assume you got a couple of weeks' notice. Like, okay, Everglades full time job is going to be awesome. You get down. You said you got to learn how to ride, drive a boat. You got to learn how to navigate your waters that you're responsible for, as well as probably waters outside of what you're responsible for. But yeah. then, learn South Florida Gulf Coast and Everglades fishing patterns, yeah. and then. How long were you in Florida? And it sounds like a really cool job. So tell me more. Yeah, I was in Florida. I got there in 90, let's see, hold on. I'm trying to remember now. Um, 1999, because I had, I was at Yosemite when I got offered the job in Florida. And it was a, it was a, a program with the Park Service called the, the National Park Service Intake Program. So they offered you, it was a, it got you to a better pay grade. So it was a career opportunity. So I, I had no desire really to live in South Florida in the hot, humid, buggy mess of the Everglades, but I went there for a couple of years. And um, I mean, it, it was a good experience. I really enjoyed it. And um, so it was nice, uh, even though I would come home smelling like a fish every day, cause I was, you know, grabbing people's fish and measuring them on a board on, on the back of my boat. Um, it was, it was a good experience. <laughs> well, Ryan, I mean, holy crap. So for a job, you got in a boat, a nice yeah. boat, I imagine that is you driving around by yourself or with a, with a partner. Yeah. And then you're just checking on fishers, people fishing and acting up. But really this is how it sounded to me. You spent a couple of years driving a boat around the Everglades and the Gulf Coast. That sounds really awesome. It was good. You know, it was good. I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, I mean, I'm not a big fisherman. I had to learn how to talk fishing speak real good. You know, I could, I could drop into my good old boy fishing, uh, fishing talk. And um, so it was something I really enjoyed for a couple of years. And, uh, but yeah, it was a good experience because the Gulf Coast had a lot of, you know, it was very shallow water through there. So at, at high tide, you will have a certain amount of water. But then when the tide drops out, you might be looking at an oyster bar where you had three feet of water beforehand. So you really had to pay attention to what the water was doing because you might run aground real quick, uh, you know, when the tide changes. So what about um, gators? Um, oh, yeah. What about, um, you mentioned in, the, in our pre-discussion, um, what were yeah. those boats? Uh, Airboats. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've worked in South Florida a couple of times. So I worked at a place called you know Everglades National Park, which is a million and a half acres. So 1.5 million acres of uh, wild, uh, crazy country. Um, and then I worked at a place called Big Cypress National Preserve, which is um, just above the Everglades. And um, we allowed hunting there at the Big Cypress. And that's where a lot of times you would deal with, um, we had the Florida panther there, which was an endangered species that where people were, you know, always looking to, I mean, you couldn't hunt them, but they were protected. And then you had a lot of alligators you had to deal with. And so we were talking about sometimes a rogue alligator would get into a, um, an area of where visitors were at. And so 
I remember one day they called in, hey, we got this alligator at the, the Oasis Visitor Center in the boardwalk area. Can you all come and move them out of there? So this gator was probably, I don't know, 10 feet long or something like that. But it took a, a bunch of us. We had to bum rush this thing. I got somebody, <laughs> some poor, poor ranger jumped on the back and um, he duct taped its mouth shut. And then, um, then we, we ended up handcuffing this poor alligator, you know, it's with its, uh, you know, its claws and arms behind its back. And then we had to move this alligator out of this uh, visitation, this visitor area and move it to an area where it wasn't being a problem. So, I mean, it's just like stuff like that. You never know what's going on. That is crazy. Okay, that, <laughs> I, man. And, and I imagine there's not a ton of how to deal with an alligator training. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, I remember I, I've done some races in Florida starting on the East Coast or the Gulf Coast racing back and forth. And we got a little briefing on alligators and at nighttime you'd see the red eyes, that kind yeah. of thing. And, and usually the eyes are pretty close together, which told me they were smaller, that All kind right. of thing. And, and you really had no grasp of what a 10-foot alligator looks like or a mm -hmm. bigger one. Right. Um, and I remember it was one of those all-day, all-night races, and we were canoeing through some sort of little river, not much flow at all. And we came around this bend, and there was this giant, what looked like albino alligator, but it was dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, yeah. It was bigger. Its upper body was bigger than me, and the claws were like out here. That changed my entire perspective on canoeing in the <laughs> same waters when they were literally almost the size of the canoe and their upper bodies were bigger than me. And you don't think of the perspective of that dinosaur swimming under a canoe that you're in. Yeah, um, those things have been around for a long time, that's for sure. Right. Um, so that's a cool story about Florida. Where else have you been that uh, is paired up with some, some neat adventures? Um, you know, I think, you know, Yosemite National Park was a good place to where I've worked where it's one of those things that, you know, Yosemite is like one of those big, I mean, everybody knows Yosemite of, you know, the, the, the waterfalls and the big cliffs. And that's where the, I guess the first time I felt like, hey, I've made it to the, like kind of the big show. It's like, you know, you make it made it to the majors. And so you're walking around Yosemite Valley and you know, you got the ranger flat hat on, you're walking to your shift briefing in the visit. You know, it's, it's just kind of a cool feeling. And Yosemite was one of those places had its own jail, had its own court, um, had a lot of different things that, you know, we were getting, we were having bears break into cars in Yosemite National Park because visitors were leaving food in their cars and the the park was saying hey if you're going to leave food in your don't leave food in your cars we have these metal boxes you can put them in and secure them safely and walking around yosemite valley in the you know at the night and you'd hear this shattering of a windshield and you're like is that a car break in or is a bear breaking into a car and so you go find <laughs> what the bears would do, they would grab, you know, grab onto where the, you know, the door, the top of the door frame, and they would pull the window down 
and just shatter the wind, the, the, <laughs> the door window. And they'd hop in there and you'd find this bear just tearing the heck out of the interior of the car looking for the food. Um, We're talking about a grizzly bear, not a black bear <laughs> like we see right here, but a gigantic grizzly. No, not a grizzly, a black bear. I mean, it's um, not, there wasn't grizzly bears in Yosemite. And um, so, but it was one of those things that we were, they were giving a lot. They were telling people, get your stuff out of your car or the bears are going to break into them. And so people wouldn't listen. And, um, you know, it's job security. It's one of those things that you, you, <laughs> you have to go and find these people and tell them you've towed their car because a, a, a bear has broken into it. And here's your citation because you failed to follow the regulations of proper food storage. And, and now you have to uh, get your car repaired because the, the bear has torn up all the upholstery inside the car. So again, do you get special bear training? Um, I don't remember getting a special bear training. I mean, uh, <laughs> was one of those things I talked about earlier. Um, you know, uh, a visitor, it was dark and I was out walking the campgrounds and a visitor was like, hey, there's a bear right around the corner you know, watch out. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a ranger. I can handle it. I got this. No problem. And I didn't know what I was doing. And so um, I walk up to the bear. I, you know, I got within maybe 12 feet of it and the bear turns toward me and it, 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 it makes a, a rush towards me. And I learned this later, but it was, it was making, it was doing a bluff charge to uh, say, Hey, Watch out, because if you don't, if you don't stop right now, I'm gonna come all the way at you. And so, I was like, "Hey, I'm out of here. You know, I'm gonna back off." And eventually, the bear, you know, the bear scattered all, skedaddled on out of there, and I wasn't, uh, <laughs> I wasn't mauled by a bear. Wow! But I did that training about, uh, you know, what a bluff charge was. That that's crazy. Also, okay. <laughs> um, what um. What other really cool places have you been to uh, prior to coming back to um, Harpers Ferry? Well, I worked at um, a place, uh, Gettysburg National Military Park, which is you know just up the road about an hour from here. And I, when I was 18, I, you know, I was a big Civil War buff when I was younger. And so I was like, hey, I want to work at Gettysburg National Military Park because that's, everybody knows that place. Um, so eventually I had applied for jobs there many times in my career and eventually in 2009, I was hired up there at Gettysburg. So I went up there and um, it was just an awesome place to work because I'd always wanted to be there. And um, being able to work there during the 150th anniversary um, of the battle was pretty cool. And, um, you know, I was, you know, one cool story from that park was uh, I drove by one of these, we had these towers at Gettysburg where people can climb up and look at the battlefield from about, you know, about 80 feet up. And um, I had driven by there a couple minutes before, but then I got called by the dispatcher and said, hey, some visitors have called and they say there's a guy standing on the outside of this tower. Looks like he wants to jump. And so I've never had, you know, how to talk a guy down from <laughs> jumping off a tower. So I turned back around and I go, and I'm like, there he is. He's standing on the outside of this railing of this tower. And I'm like, 
man, I don't want this guy to jump and land right on the ground in front of me. And I'm going to see that vision. I'm going to see that vision in my head for the rest of my life. Um, so I'm just start talking to this guy and he doesn't want to talk and he's not telling me who he is and that kind of thing. I call one of the local officers around to come and help me. And I'm like, I'm like, Hey, go up there and try to talk to this guy uh, and see if he'll come, you know, see if he'll start talking to us. And um, the, the, the cop actually knew him from like, they start talking to each other and he's not, he's not giving us information about what's going on. So eventually we call this guy's parents cause they still live in town. And once his parents got there within five minutes, he was on the other side of the railing cause he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't going to jump, you know, and kill himself in front of his parents. So he's like, Oh man, you call my parents on me. And within five minutes, he was on the other side of the tunnel or on the other side of the railing. And from what I know, he's still with us today. Wow. So how long have you been a ranger? Um, let's see. I, well, I started doing the law enforcement side of the job in 1995. So, um, I mean, ever since then, so it's over 20 years now. Right. So it's really cool to hear these stories and, and, hearing one right after another, after another, with all the dead time in the middle not being accounted for, it sounds very adventurous. And it sounds like a very, very fun job to have, um, especially yes, now that you're now that you're chief. How many um, ranges are you in charge? Well, including me, um, there's uh, including me, there's six of us here at Harpers Ferry. So um, got a good got a good crew. They're all well experience and they know their business that's for sure and how long have you been in harpers ferry um i got back here in 2015 i've i've come i've worked at harpers ferry three times in my career i keep coming back to this place i'm not sure what it is it just sucks you back you know um because there's a lot of history here and it's, it's a real pretty place to work how about jurisdiction is the cno park a different uh jurisdiction than the um harpers ferry it is it's a different I mean, for us, it's the same jurisdiction. Like I can go, if somebody's over there on the CNO canal doing something, what they, you know, what they shouldn't be doing, I could go ahead and take action on them. Cause I had, I have, it's a national park service jurisdiction. And so I could, if I was at Yosemite national park again, and I just happened to be visiting there, I could take action if I really wanted to. And, and, um, and take care I, of business. I, I guess what I'm asking is, does the CNO have their own version of park rangers? Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, they they have they're 184 miles long is the CNO canal from to Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland. It's a real long and you know it's long, narrow, skinny park. But yeah, they have law enforcement rangers for um, for that for that park. All right, I, there's a part of the part of your story that I want to talk about, and I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, 2015, wasn't that around the time that you were at the World Police and Fire Games around the same time? Yes, I. Um, uh, the World uh, Police and Fire Games is held every two every two years, and in 2015 they were going to do going to be held around the Fairfax uh, area of Virginia, and they have all these types of types of uh, events that you if you want to sign up for them. 
and you're a police or for a firefighter, then you can go ahead and be involved with them. And um, I like I like biking a lot, so they had some bicycle racing, and so I was wanting to be involved with one of those, so I signed up for one uh, at a place called Prince William Forest Park, which is a National Park Service unit there in Prince William County, Virginia. So I was there on uh, July 2nd, 2015. Was that uh, road cycling or mountain biking? Uh, it was road cycling. Yeah, it was uh, 35 miles is what the the race distance was supposed to be. Um, so we were going to do a seven mile loop five times, if my math's right. Um, and going to do so that. So break down for me what happened there, if from yeah. what you can you've been told or recollect. I remember reading the article about you, um, mm -hmm. and and how it all went down. So tell me the story, please. Yeah, we we had just started the race, um, and we hadn't gotten very far. Um, and I I did check with the guy who was involved with the crash with me. And I was like, how far, you know, he's his GPS uh, stopped. Hold on, Ryan. For some reason, I've lost you right during the juiciest part of this story. Hold on. from Brazil, an officer from Canada, and then myself. Can you hear me? Is that you? It says connections unstable is what it says. Okay, can you hear me now? Because I know where I lost you. Okay, I can hear you now, yeah. I lost you right at the beginning when you said I talked to the guy I was in the accident with and then you went sideways. So. Start back from that part, please. All right. <laughs> I talked to a guy, the guy I was in, there was three of us that were involved in the crash. There was an officer uh, named Daryl. He was from Winnipeg, Canada. He's a police officer there. There was an officer from Brazil, uh, uh, Inspector uh, Carlos Silva, and I and myself. And so I asked Daryl because I don't remember how far we had gotten into the race. And he said, my GPS uh, stopped at mile 4.4, .4, I think it was. So that's where that's where the crash took place. We hadn't even finished the lap yet. And so what I was told, and I can't, I don't know if it's true, but it sounds like somebody tire somebody's tire popped on their bike, and this caused the crane the um, a chain reaction crash where uh, the three of three of us were involved and. Unfortunately, Carlos was, um, took the brunt of the impact because he was killed during the crash, and um, which is a, a bad situation. And Daryl, uh, I think, sustained like 14 or 15 broken ribs in the crash, and he might have had some other uh, some other things that were were going on. But I guess I was the second worst out of the whole. Um, of the three of us. Hold on. That's hard for me to even comprehend. How can you be riding a bicycle at any speed yeah. and destroy yeah. all your ribs? Um, mm -hmm. I, can, I can understand a head injury or um, a heart attack or something that would uh, really, it could kill you. Right. 
but to have three people in the same incident get that severely injured is really hard to, I mean, did you crash into vehicles or was there like a, is, do you have anybody able to describe how it went down? Yeah, basically um, what, what I guess they did an investigation, the Prince William uh, police and we had, we were going down a hill. So, and uh, Daryl's GPS, I think, he had gotten to like 40 something miles an hour. We were like 41, 40, it was, it was in the 40 miles an hour range. We were going down this hill. And then um, I believe there was a, a wooden guardrail that is right along the road. And I say, I think that's where Carlos impacted was into the, the wooden. And so I, I landed on the pavement and I rolled, I think it was, they said like 150 feet, something like that. <laughs> so it was, I was rolling on the pavement and, you know, I sustained a traumatic brain injury out of the, and I, I broke like eight ribs. I broke a clavicle, you know, a, a collarbone. And then um, on the left side, I'm trying to think of the whole, the list of injuries. And then I had some nerve damage to my arm, which, which uh, required some surgery to fix. That's absolutely horrible. Um, I, it's, it, that scares me to ride my bicycle fast, man. The, the, the fact that people could get injured at that level. Um, what happened next? Did they fly you somewhere? I mean, I guess you were in the right company of responders, but at the same yeah. time, what, what, how, how did things go? And tell me about the surgeries and the recovery and, how you got back to being as normal as I see you now. Yeah. Well, I was, I was like a lot of things in my situation. I have involved luck. And so that day I was very lucky. I had some great responders that were there to respond um, to me and work on me. Um, a guy named Josh, a lady named Barb. Um, and um, I was taken by life flight from the Quantico national cemetery they life flighted to me, life flighted me to uh, Inova Fairfax Hospital. And then um, I had uh, two craniotomies that night uh, done by a, a neurosurgeon. His last, last name is Baez. And um, so I was in a medically induced coma for like three weeks. I don't, I don't remember any of my time in Fairfax. Um, so, I mean, if you ask me what I remember of Fairfax, I would say I don't remember anything. Um, but in August, I, like early August, I was flown down to what's called the Shepherd Center, which is a hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, and they specialize in spinal cord and brain injuries, uh, rehab for that. And so I spent from August until the middle of November there going through rehab and then therapy. <laughs> okay, hold on a sec, man. I got to know more. So, blackout at the accident. Yes. Jumbled memory before the accident. Yep. Medically induced coma for three weeks-ish after two probably significant brain surgeries. Right. Broken ribs, clavicle, <laughs> terrible um what was it like coming to did they bring you out or did you come out of the coma naturally 
I think they brought me out. I mean, I, if you ask me what my first memory is, uh, I couldn't tell you. When I, I do remember, like, for some reason, I asked them, where am I? Or like, like they said, you're at the Shepherd Center. And so somehow I equated that I was in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. I was like, there's no place in called the, I, what am I doing in West Virginia? I, I had no idea what was going on. And um, I mean, my brain was playing, I was having hallucinations. I, I couldn't tell you what my first clear memory was of the Shepherd Center, but. Uh, okay, okay. So there's so much as I said here. So waking up, just confusion, probably groggy, probably pain meds, you know, that was happening, right? So you, they flew you in a coma from Inova to Atlanta. So it wasn't like you were already starting to get better. They kind of woke you up in Atlanta? Well, no, actually I was awake. I mean, I have pictures of me on the flight. You know, my, my mom says that it's the most expensive flight you ever took and you don't remember any, any of it. So, I mean, you see me in the, in the plane and I got my eyes open. Um, I'm awake, but I have no memory of it. So, um, but it's, it was tough, you know, um, and it was tough on my parents too, because, you know, to think about, you know, they got a call because they are still in Indiana and they're like, you need to get out, out here to Indi out to, to Virginia as quickly as possible. Don't drive. You need to fly out here because he might not be around by the time you get here. So they had to fly out and they spent, they ended up spend, spending 18 months with me, you know, all through rehab. So the parents were, the parents were great. Yeah, that's really amazing, Ryan. I mean, so I guess the next question I've got is, how did the traumatic brain injury affect you? Was it mm -hmm. language? Was it motor skills? Kind of right. describe that for me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they... Uh, it was a, it's a lot of different things. You know, I had to, I had to learn how to walk again. Um, I mean, I had to go through all different types of physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, speech therapy. Um, certainly the brain, the brain injury has affected, you know, in some ways memory. I, you know, it's, I had to go through a lot of testing to get back and cleared to return to full duty because that was my, my goal was to say, Hey, I want to do my job again. And, to be able to be medically cleared to, to do the law enforcement side of the job again. And so it took a long time to get declared for that. Well, that's, that's definitely an amazing story. And the fact that you're as normal as you are now after something that's so traumatic, I, I took some neuroscience classes in undergrad and right. um, the, the, the damages that could happen is you could have been so damaged that you didn't even understand English. You couldn't even understand words that were being spoken to you. So the, the fact yeah. that you were able to get even into therapy and then able to speak the proper way again or to move efficiently again, it, it, that's a real miracle. It's, it must have taken a lot of hard work. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I was in the Shepherd Center's um, inpatient program uh, through the middle of September. And so that was like a month and a half going through therapy and stuff. And I wasn't, I, mean, I was still in a wheelchair right as I got out of the Shepherd Center's uh, inpatient program. 
uh, and I wasn't speaking very much. And I know that the, we would always laugh about it, but I had had, I was talking to my doctor and I, I mean, I had had a seizure the day before and so that, that seizure must have like unclogged my brain a little bit because I said, Hey doctor, what's my, pro what's my prognosis? You know, what's my prognosis? And her, my, my parents were like, what? I mean, he hasn't said hardly anything. <laughs> and now, you, now he's using a word like prognosis to ask his doctor. And so that kind of, I think the seizure kind of like jarred me awake a little bit, got me going. Holy crap, Brian. I mean, that's, that's an insane story. Um, well, and then obviously you're back to duty. So you had, you had to go through all the certifications and figuring that stuff out again. Yeah. Um, is there a, you said you wrote an article for, um, what's it called? Uh, love your brain. Is that, is that something yeah. you kind of spread the awareness of? Yeah. Yeah. There's a group, um, uh, called love your brain and they can just do, you know, loveyourbrain.com. And it was formed by a guy named Kevin Pierce and he was this awesome snowboarder who was, you know, set, to, he was beating Sean White back in the day. I mean, Sean White's still around, but Kevin Pierce, um, had a traumatic brain injury, uh, training for the Olympics. Um, and so he was at the top of his game doing, he was going to, you know, possibly could have won the Olympics in 2009 or whenever the Olympics were going to be. Um, I can't remember which one he was training for, but his, his journey to come back from brain injury was documented in a thing called the crash reel. It's a documentary. And, um, and he formed a, uh, a group called love your brain and it's a brain injury awareness group. And they, advocate things like healthy eating, yoga, uh, exercise, things that, you know, if you're going to, if you want to do as best you can to have a healthy comeback from brain injury, then you gotta, you gotta be active and you gotta eat right. Um, and you'll get into things like mindfulness, meditation, those kind of things. So, um, I, I'm certainly, a someone who advocates for that kind of thing as being a uh, survivor. And, and you saw, you saw uh, benefits from doing yoga and meditation. Oh, yeah. And I, I never even thought of that. Like what are, in my mind, either the brain's working or it's not working. And if it's not quite working, it's got to kind of sit and wait. But what I guess right. what you're saying and what this website's saying is that if you were applying these positive aspects of recovery, additionally, it makes you that much, I guess, it works more efficiently. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, yoga was good because it, I mean, I, and I suck at yoga still these days, but uh, it's one of those things that it settled, settled the brain down. It made you focus on your breathing. You know, you know, you got the yoga instructor talking to you and say, Hey, you know, breathe in, you know, hold it, breathe out, you know, those kind of things while you're doing your movements. Um, I'm not, I'm not a very good meditator, but, um, it's one of those things. Uh, one of the byproducts of brain injuries is anxiety. So, um, getting yourself to calm down and kind of be more aware of what's going on in the present is something that 
somebody who has a brain injury can uh, can work on. Wow, that's that's great. I, I seriously, I love this podcast. I learn I learn so many things. I really do. Um, two more topics I want to discuss. One yes. is what's it like to get the call that a train accident has happened in your tiny town. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things that, you know, we got, got the call. It was a, I think it was a text, like, like something like three, something like four o'clock in the morning. Hey, there's a train derailment in Harper's Ferry. You know, part of the, the footbridge has been, a you know, uh, you know, I'm worried about, luckily it was three, you know, something in the morning. It wasn't 345 in the afternoon on a busy Saturday where people are walking along the footbridge um, uh, crossing over the river from into Maryland. So, uh, and I was worried about hazardous materials where there hazardous materials on that train. Um, and luckily there were not, um, you know, the byproduct of the train derailment was now we have no way to get across the bridge from West Virginia over into Maryland until we can get it um, reconstructed. So just a little bit of background, because people outside this region will be listening to the podcast, I assume. Um, I think it was right before Christmas, you know, it just came across social media, train accident in Harper's right. Ferry, and the yes. darn cars fell into the river. So how <laughs> dramatic it, it seemed was really over the top. And whenever you think of a train derailment, I think, in my mind, I'm thinking high-speed derailments where... Right. cars pile on top of each other but this in this situation it almost seemed like a peaceful derailment like it just yeah. kind of fell over yeah it was a low speed and um we're lucky that the 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 uh, derailment didn't happen on the main line of the bno because that main line is where most of the majority of the, the train traffic runs so it was on a separate bridge and um low speed that that train never crosses that bridge very fast so um we were lucky that it was it happened because that would that train i mean they got the the derailment cleaned up within a couple of days um and got the, the the trains were running again on that rail pretty quickly um but it could have been i assume you're not in a position to comment on what made the train derail um, right. But that would be interesting to hear just because how does a slow train derailment even happen? Um, right. But there, but there are projections that construction should be starting sometime in May, ideally from what I've heard. And that, um, that footbridge, which connects the CNO over with Harper's Ferry, but it, additionally, it's a, it, it is part of the Appalachian trail artery um, right. and Appalachian trail hikers start usually late April and started right. hiking north, and they usually hit this area right around mid-June. Is that is that approximate, you think? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with the whole coronavirus situation, there's been, there's been, they haven't been stressing, you know, through hiking as much because of, uh, you know, people, they'll move up the trail as, as kind of this big herd, and they don't want people clustering around. But, um, but yeah, it is, that's the only way to, and the Appalachian Trail crosses the bridge right there. That's the only way to get across. Um, so, yeah. I remember on my Appalachian Trail attempt, which was just uh, 
a pilgrimage of self-discovery. Um, I remember one of the realizations I had was that I was literally homeless. I, I was living out of a backpack and I didn't like feeling or acting like a vagrant sitting out, sitting outside on the bench at a grocery store. First of all, who does that? That's where I was enjoying my lunch. And I realized a, a police officer drove by me and gave me a dirty look. And I was like, <laughs> I'm loitering. Um, but I was just kind of thinking, I was like, I don't see how quarantine or government regulations are really going to have a massive effect on a large group of vagrants that are literally nomadic traveling through the wilderness. Like they, right. I imagine it won't be as big as it usually is year in and year out. But, right. um, but still, that is a challenge to have that bridge up and running in time. Otherwise, I guess you got to just divert and go across. Uh, what you have to do is, yeah, uh, what you have to do is you're going to have to rely I mean, either on what they call trail angels, where somebody could give you a lift over to. Because what the, I mean, all you're doing is missing a very small section of the Appalachian Trail. That So what you can do is either walk over which is a dangerous walk along Highway 340, which I wouldn't suggest, but hopefully rely on some nice stranger to, to take you over to the Sino Canal. And then you can walk, because the walk to where the, the footbridge comes down, and then you can continue your journey on the Appalachian Trail. So you're just missing, what, a couple hundred yards of the Appalachian Trail? That would yeah. be the place on that, the that's, that's true, but they oddly become these, people, pure, some, these purists of, purist, yeah. yeah which is fine yeah yeah um so the final question i have for you ryan is i mean you tell these stories about wrangling alligators <laughs> and then false or the, the charges of a bear and then driving a boat and then living in st louis and yosemite which is probably like a dream come true no matter how long you spend there um mm. Without sugarcoating this, let's talk about what makes the a good candidate for uh, the law enforcement side of right. being a ranger. Who who would that be? Well, it's one of those people. You certainly got to be one of those people that doesn't mind telling people not to do things. You got to have some a good strong conviction about say, hey, you got to believe in what, the job that you're doing. And so, I mean, I could be a regular police officer, but I probably wouldn't be as good at being a regular police officer as I would a ranger because I believe in the what I'm the, the the parks I'm trying to protect. And I don't have I don't mind telling people not to do things and and being able to take appropriate action when I need to because you can there's certainly a lot of times you tell people not to do things. And then they tell you to eh, buzz off and they just keep doing it. You got to be able to have the strength of, or the conviction to say, Hey, you're going to, you're going to stop. It's one of those, you got to have the, the right demeanor to do the job. Everybody has certainly seen videos of the cops that think they're super cop and they're, they have that cop attitude. They're jaded, but you have, a, you have to have a, a good, level attitude uh a level level head um and uh, i would say a positive outlook on things to well, be a good ranger my uneducated vision of what it is it seems like you're a cop 
who's regulating people's good times. And it's probably <laughs> not as uh, routine as a normal uh, sheriff's deputy or a town cop because they're, they're seeing the same sort of things, same sort of people uh, committing right. the same sort of crimes. And I'm not saying it's routine, but I'm saying it's, you can expect to see a certain amount of these different things. Whereas you're kind of a, an officer of adventure, like, and people are getting into environments, whether it's rafting or caves or hiking or mountain biking, you have a, almost a specialized version of accidents or law enforcement is, would you agree with that? Well, in some ways it's like, you're the no, you're the no fun place sometimes because you're, you're, you're raining on their, uh, their fun times, but, we certainly have regulations in place to protect our park resources um, and overuse can lead to um, resource damage. I mean, it's, it's tough sometimes because you're having to tell people not to do something that they think is fun, but is it the regulations in place for a reason and you're raining on their parade. But, if I'm working in, in a parking garage in St. Louis and somebody's urinating in, in the garage and I, I don't wanna sit in there and smell the, the urine baking in the, the, the warm summer heat, I mean, come on guys, you know. But it's, it's, it's one of those things, you gotta have a, there are a lot of things that we deal with that are minor in situations, but a lot of the same crime that's happening out there in the real in the real world is happening in parks as well. We're getting this type, same type of things. I and I imagine it depends on the kind of the personality of each park and the way they're located. Yeah. Could yeah. drum up like you said, you had to learn fish. You had to learn <laughs> hunting, and then you had to learn what what's going on in West Texas, which is right. Was it West Texas or East Texas? Oh, West Texas. Not much. Not much going on there. So what kind of education would somebody pursue if they wanted to get into uh, park ranger Um, I mean, rangers have all types of different, I've met rangers of all types. I mean, certainly, um, I mean, a college education is nice to have, but it's not essential. Um, there's people that have all types of degrees and are rangers. Uh, you know, I've met people as people that are, have law degrees, have history degrees, business degrees, all, all these different types. I mean, there's no set thing that says, hey, if you wanna be a ranger, you have to have a degree in uh, law enforcement or criminal justice. But um, yeah, and even, you know, the military is a good way to go too, you know, being a vet. Okay, so how about this? Are there any myths that you could tell me that you could dispel like being a, park ranger is this and not that or how could we discourage somebody who thinks it's one way to hey well maybe it's not for me right well i mean i, I would say that i mean a park job is not a guarantee it's not a, a guarantee because there it takes some time sometimes to get picked up by the federal government as a ranger i mean it took me five years to get on permanently with the government but that's uh, a short time there. Uh, if you, if you ask the Rangers, like a, a certain amount of Rangers, like how long did it take you to get your permanent job as a, a Ranger? That, that answer might be seven years. So it's, it takes a little bit of a struggle. So you have to be dedicated to want to get into the job 
and I wouldn't be, it's gotta be somebody that's flexible and wants to move around. I, mean, I was, I was willing to move all around the country to get a, a government job, um, to get experience and that eventually moving from, you know, West Virginia to West Texas, to Nevada, to Missouri, to, to, to Yosemite was, I mean, that was being flexible. If I remember correctly, when I was talking to um, the recruitment department when I was in college, because they came to like a job fair or something like that, mm -hmm. um, it's pretty tight on the finances in the beginning. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, things have changed over the years. I mean, I went back and I found a, a pay stub from like 1993 when I was a, a GS3 Ranger and I was making I'm, my annual salary was supposed to be $15,000 a year. <laughs> but I mean, the pay has gotten better um, over the years. Uh, Rangers used to make a, a joke that we got paid in sunsets and you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't uh, live on sunsets. Um, but the pay has gotten better over the years. Oh yeah. And I was going to allude to that. I haven't heard it put that way, but, but really it's, um, it's an opportunity to work in nature. And if you love nature and you love being in the parks, I mean, to some extent you're patrolling something that you probably just really love and respect. Um, mm -hmm. I had a similar experience when I was studying recreation and sports administration. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I equated that to like we were in charge of programming for a university's intramurals and group exercise and gym programming and mm -hmm. and then putting together events for people to have fun at. I realized we were just like the wardens or the the directors of just good times. I said, how is this even a job? Like we're just having good times. I imagine mm -hmm. that's how being a ranger is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's certainly some days you're like, if I'm out on an airboat in the Everglades and I'm, you know, it's like I'm in this this river of grass and running an airboat, I'm like, or I'm flying a, in a helicopter um, in the Everglades, you know, in South Florida. I'm like, I'm getting paid to do this stuff. You know, it's just not too bad. Um, so there are, there are days like that, but there's certainly days when you're like, man, this sucks. You know, I'm this, you know. It's not a fun part of the job and you, you have your good days and bad days. So, um, but you are spending your whole day in a park. It's not like, then again, you're sitting in an office right now. Um, but to some extent you it's, that's who is probably for us for people who really love the outdoors, probably the same thing when it comes to game warden and similar paths like that. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly different types of Rangers. I mean, my wife is a, uh, she's more on the natural side. She knows more about the plants and the trees and, you know, Hey, is that, is that an edible plant? Whereas I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't know that stuff. You know, I ask me the history story. I can, I can do that. Um, so there's, there's every different type of ranger out there. Um, that's for sure. And, um, so yeah, it's the, the, the options are, there's lots of different options. Well, that's cool. Well, I, I hope that this is uh, shared with other people who might be listening a little bit of perspective about kind of about the Harper's Ferry and what you do and a little mm -hmm. bit about, you know, the chief ranger in Harper's Ferry. But 
I appreciate you educating me on things I wouldn't totally clear on. And it does seem very, um, very awesome to be a ranger. I, I know you're like, and people who, who are rangers be like, what? There's so much sitting in the front seat of a, of a vehicle, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like there could be all these other things that we're not making sound as glamorous, but I think it's, I think it's a really cool path you've been on and I can see why you would commit a career to it for real. Well, yeah, it's certainly worth, if you want to take the effort to get into it, I mean, certainly it has its good days and bad days and you have to deal with the government bureaucracy sometimes, but I mean, it, all in all, it's, it's been a good, good career. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share? Anything you think I missed or didn't bring up? Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, I can't think of anything. I, I'm just thinking of if we saw you, you know, walking down the street of Harpers Ferry, might be one of those things that, hey, what's that guy doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did send me a, a photo of a suspect vehicle in your jurisdiction, <laughs> and it happened to be my painting truck, which I found very, very funny. Very funny. Well, all right, Ryan. Well, yeah, well, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the invite, and it's uh, been a pleasure to talk with you, Kevin. Awesome. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Today's intro song is called Mean in a Good Way. It's written and performed by Peter Clark off of his album, Peter Clark After Dark. Peter, <laughs> Peter describes this song as being the best song to learn hula hooping to. Peter is an avid hooper and recently started a hula hoop repair business. If you ever need hula hoop repair, consider contacting Peter. You can reach him on SoundCloud. Just search Peter Clark After Dark.